0: Welcome to Episode 8 of the podcast of Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Tijiboy. Chapter 8, Judy's Inspiration. The surgery has succeeded, the drains have cured her infection, the alimentation is strengthening her, and her her hallucinations have stopped with the switch to methadone. Judy is emerging out of her semi-conscious haze, but Jeej is concerned. With Judy better able to understand the bleakness of her situation, death has a greater capacity to snatch her. Healing is not just a matter of treating the body, but also nourishing the soul. She needs to see why she's going through all this, he realizes. She needs to see her children. He explains to Cliff that seeing her children will boost her spirits and power her healing. Back on Ivanhoe Court, Cliff has created a new routine for 13-year-old Cindy, 11-year-old Julie, and 8-year-old Miriam. He has asked his Aunt Connie, his father's sister, a woman he can lean on, to help him. She lives just south of Eglinton and Pharmacy, while they live near Lawrence and Pharmacy in Scarborough a 15-20 to minute drive. Aunt Connie never had children, is single, and is a generation older than Cliff. Her notions about raising children come from a different era, and she is quiet like Cliff. But she is a willing spirit. Aunt Connie arrives every morning to cook breakfast for the family. She sees the girls off to school and Cliff off to work. She gives them lunch, cooks dinner, puts the girls to bed, and goes home late after Cliff returns from the hospital. She runs the household, like Judy had, puts her focus on the children, like Judy had, and makes dinner the central family event with Cliff, herself, and the girls, like Judy had. She even makes rice or tapioca pudding every day as another measure of stability, and she tries to meet the girls' needs as their ages demand. Despite the fact that she argues with Cindy over rules for thirteen year olds, she lets her stay up late to watch TV, unbeknownst to Cliff. One night, Cindy is watching Oklahoma when Aunt Connie suddenly scoots her off to bed. Cliff's headlights had just lit up the garage door. Julie, lying in her bed, hears the TV being switched off and Cindy scrambling into bed. Julie isn't too happy with her older sister's special privileges. Why does Aunt Connie let Cindy get away with stuff like coming home late from school and then getting to watch TV? She grumbles to herself. Why can Cindy not accept what is told her, like she and Miriam do? But Miriam, lying awake in bed too, figures Cindy, being much older, deserves special privileges. And when all goes quiet, she rolls over and cries herself to sleep, as she does every night. No one speaks of Judy. Cliff believes that the less said about her, the better for them. Neither Cliff nor Aunt Connie ever discusses Judy at the table or anywhere in front of the girls. They strive to create an atmosphere of normalcy, not wanting to alarm the girls. They believe they are sending the message that the girls' lives are about chores and homework, just like before, not about a dying mom. Instead, their message creates unease and fear in the girls. To them, their mother has ceased to exist in the house on Ivanhoe Court, and their father appears only at dinner time and then vanishes again. Living within this information vacuum, the girls learn to read moods. They know when something bad is happening to their mother because their dad becomes moody. Cindy tries to eavesdrop to learn more. She listens to the morning conversations between her dad and Aunt Connie when he relates what has happened the night before at the hospital. She listens to conversations between Aunt Connie and the neighbors as Aunt Connie brings them up to speed. She listens to her dad talk on the phone to their GP, Dr. Jeffrey Isaac, during his nightly calls. Still, in the end, she and her sisters only know that their mom is ill and that everyone's taking it day by day. That's it. Then one Sunday morning, her dad announces that they will visit mom after the girls come back from church. The mother, who has disappeared, is suddenly reappearing in a new unfamiliar setting. It's a gray November day. Cliff piles the three girls in the car after they'd returned from church and eaten lunch and drives them and Aunt Connie down the parkway to TGH. No one speaks. Fear of the unknown grips the girls. Hospitals are foreign to them. The only doctor they'd ever seen had been their GP in his office. All Cindy can think about is that they're getting to see her because she has been classified as terminal. Their mom is going to die for sure. They troop after Cliff into the pollution blackened red brown brick building and along the brightly lit hallway, following the route Cliff has taken every day for almost two months now. It is quiet and empty until they pass through the right hand jog, walk through a spot of partial darkness and enter the brightly lit ward. They stop outside the nurse's station. The girls are scared. The smell is horrendous. A mixture of vomit and strong cleaning fluid. Cliff takes them into the tiny room across from the station, and they see their mother for the first time since she had told them, I'll be back in an hour. This is not their mother. She is bones. Her hair is lifeless, her skin dead. There are all sorts of things coming out of her and going into her. There is a pole beside her, bristling with bags and bottles, pushing fluid down a tube that disappears into her chest. She looks drugged, and the smell is worse. Judy turns her head and smiles. Her face lights up. Her arms reach out weakly, and the girls shuffle toward her. It is hard to hug her. They are afraid to hurt her. Miriam groans, puts her hand up to her mouth, and pukes before she can get to the bathroom. She doesn't even know where it is. An orderly quickly appears and swabs the floor. Cliff shows in the bathroom, so that if one of the others throws up, she'll do it in the toilet. Only Julie is visibly happy to see her mother. Judy tires quickly that first day, and Aunt Connie ushers the girls down to the cafeteria while Cliff stays with her. Judy is already snoozing. The cafeteria is in a burnt yellow-brown subway-tiled basement. Glass doors mark the entrance to this utilitarian, windowless space and Connie sits with them as they nibble and wait for Judy to regain energy. This first visit sets the stage for every Sunday after. TGH becomes their second home. Sundays become mindless routine of getting dressed, going to church, seeing mom, taking turns puking, eating dinner in the cafeteria, and going to bed. Sometimes surgery will prevent them from visiting, which upsets Julie greatly as she is always eager to see her mother again as soon as they leave. Sometimes their gammy joins them. Judy's mother keeps them company in the cafeteria, occupying their minds by asking about school and such things, while Cliff sits with a sleeping Judy. Miriam develops a fear of needles and tubes, and Cindy blocks her emotions. Only Julie seems unaffected. But now their dad appears, telling them that Mom is awake again and wants to see them. They straggle back up to her room for a second visit. Judy brightens when they walk in. She feels so blessed to see them she thrills to the touch of the small warm hands touching her cold one. Their high-pitched voices fill her heart with love. Seeing them, she knows what she wants to live for. She will not accept death. Her body swells with determination to accept her situation so that she can live for these girls of hers. But too soon, fatigue washes over her and she cannot resist it. She consoles herself with the knowledge that she will see them next week. She cannot wait. In any case, it's time for their dinner. She shoes Cliff off to the cafeteria with them. Afterward, he drives his family, sans Judy, home in silence. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shereen Gigiboy.